0: Let's get serious again. Seriti Commission judges under the spotlight. Mr. Michael Merchant, or Marchant, I think it's Marchant. Please, Michael, correct me when you do go on air. Mr. Michael Marchant, head of investigations at Open Secrets, focusing on the complaint they filed at the North Gauteng High Court to have judges Willy Seriti and Hendrik Musi called before the Judicial Conduct Committee to account for their failure to adequately investigate the arms deal organization wrote a letter to the JCC to investigate if the conduct of the judges amounted to criminal misconduct and called for the National Prosecuting Authority to intervene. This is as early or as far back as 2020. Some 142 billion rand is said to have been lost in the corrupt arms deal, first engaged or mentioned by the then- PAC member of parliament Patricia De Lille. much of that money 142 billion rand ending up in hands of small group of powerful European corporations politicians and middlemen we know the likes of Tony Yangeni have paid the price for that President Zuma is said to soon take the stand in the matter as he continues to grapple with the many points in limine in relation to his matter with Thales and tint and the story goes on nearly 20 years on And now this, the judges are before the question of the law and the question of equality before the law and their conduct in upholding the law as justices of the peace. Mr. Marshant, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to SAFM. Good evening, Songhez. Good evening, those listening. This is a long, bad dream that South Africans simply cannot wake up from.
1: Uh, Absolutely, and uh, it it follows quite neatly, I think, from the conversation that you've just been having uh, about the kind of long shadow of corruption in South Africa. Um, In many ways, the arms deal of 1999 is the kind of first indication that the the later apartheid networks were not dead, and that they were going to reform um, and form kind of new networks of corruption and extraction. And that really is the the genesis of the story, as you say. And there have been several processes since then that have taken us down this road where we are now, which is demanding accountability from the two judges uh, that that sat and and ran the Sariti Commission's inquiry into the arms deal. And really what this battle has taken us to today uh, is the fundamental question that the judges are raising, which is uh, whether retired judges should still be able to be held to account for any misconduct. Um, for the Judicial Service Commission, Um, and it's our argument very much that they should.
0: I'm going to ask you on the other side of the break to respond to this question, just to bring us up to speed. Now, we've mentioned for the longest time what the arms deal is all about, and whilst I may know, I don't assume that everybody does know, just take time after the ad break, please, to salient points, facts, and figures of the arms deal, its length of time, the critical role players and or the protagonists, before we really get into this very fundamental question of who guards the guards, who judges the judges, because central to that issue that you are now bringing as open secrets and, 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 and through power, sing attorneys and Jeff Budlender before the courts, it's essentially that examination, the insulation of the judiciary and whether, on its own, it can keep itself in check—that I think is the fundamental question to this application. So, after the break, that's what I propose we engage. Please, 21:21 is the time, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Michael Marshant, head of investigations at Open Secrets. Songezo on the Viewpoint. 21:23. We're talking the arms deal. We simply, as a nation, cannot emerge from this. It was first in 1999 in Parliament that Patricia DeLille raised the question of the corruption in the procurement of the state's armaments. A couple of books were written. Andrew Feinstein is one of them, who I think at the time was a member of the party. He since no longer resides in the country because of the dangers that obviously writing such a book would have courted for him. And if anything is to go by and how things happen at this day and age, particularly as it pertains to the protection of whistleblowers, something which on another day itself merits a conversation. Well, who can blame him? But do we know enough of the arms deal to even engage the question? Can I ask you then, please, Michael, to give us a short account of the timeline and the historical moments of what we know as the arms deal?
1: Uh, absolutely, Songhezo. So uh, as you have said, the the story breaks in, in 1999, which is the year that the, the deal, the Strategic Defense Procurement Package, is, is finally signed. Um, and it, the, the timeline is quite telling. It's signed in 1999. And what this means is that uh, for the first five years of our democracy, and particularly in the late 90s, the arms deal is being negotiated. Now, I think what we know quite clearly is that what the government at first says is that there's not much need for offensive weaponry to be purchased at that time. Uh, that's not the need of South Africa's military. And and what happens very quickly is that that changes. And it seems to change because many of the Western arms companies, uh, big arms companies from Germany and Britain in particular, France and others, uh, appear to be paying bribes uh, to middlemen to to push those inside the procurement system. Um, to favor them and to make very large purchases of warships and fighter jets and things of of this nature. Now, what then happens is that there's a series of revelations that then follow. There are some investigations in South Africa, for example, within parliaments in Scopa. Uh, There are some investigations overseas and, of course, by our own law enforcement, then the Scorpions. And one of the really big moments, which, as you've kind of alluded to, sits with us today, is that in 2005, uh, Jacob Zuma's uh, um, advisor, Shabir Sheikh, is convicted uh, of, of fraud and corruption in relation to uh, an allegation of 783 payments that were made to Jacob Zuma. And, and the court finds that those payments are linked to the French arms company, TALIS, and that they are allegedly linked to a promise from Jacob Zuma to protect Talos from prosecution. And and this really, I suppose, goes to the heart of the question of the arms deal, which is that you have these big French, German, and British arms companies allegedly paying bribes to access the procurement system, but then also, in the case of someone like Jacob Zuma, essentially paying protection money. So the allegation is to pay the bribes to protect them from prosecution. Of course, Tarlis is now the co accused in the Jacob Zuma trial before the KZN High Court. Um, And so the hope very much is, certainly in that prosecution, that although they were able to dodge their day in court, essentially um, for more than 20 years, that they eventually will be held to account. So that's the the story, a little bit of the arms deal. And of course, then the the next important moment is that under immense pressure uh, from civil society and the, the threat of litigation, Jacob Zuma himself, while president, initiates a commission of inquiry into the allegations of the arms deal. Uh, judges Sariti and Judge Musi uh, sit as judges on that on that commission. It is led by Judge Sariti. Uh, and then what we see during the, during the conduct of, of that commission of inquiry is we see an apparent lack of desire or unwillingness to engage in the evidence. So in 2016, Judge Sariti releases a final report that says that they found absolutely no evidence of wrongdoing whatsoever in the arms deal. However, when civil society takes the the, uh, the commission on review, uh, the High Court sets aside the commission's findings and makes it very clear that those judges made no effort to undertake any meaningful investigation into the arms deal at all, that they ignored evidence. In some very serious cases, they appear From the record in that High Court judgment to have ignored evidence that was explicitly brought to their attention and offered to them. And so that of course is what prompted them uh, to, to close the loop at least for this story. It prompted open secrets and shadow world investigations to lodge a complaint with the Judicial Conduct Committee of the Judicial Services Commission and say that the allegations and the findings in relation to the judges conduct in that commissioning inquiry are mm. so serious
0: that that they must be investigated. You mentioned Zuma a couple of times. You probably would have and could have mentioned Tony Yengeni there because the first time I learned of an ML was when that vehicle, Mercedes-Benz, was named after him. It was called and still is called a Yengeni. Shabir Sheikh paid the price in the broader scheme of what we are talking about. But beyond those three persons, is South Africa and is our history ready to engage truly the first administration and some of the challenges in accessing the treasure trough in the Mandela administration and in the Mbeki administrations, specifically because if you're talking about 99 and the Passover from the one into the next, this is ultimately still what we have to engage. It's similar to the conversations that we have today, state capture happening in the Zuma administration, Palapala and ESCOM, something which is pinned to the presidency of Ramaphosa is South Africa ready to re-engage the Nelson Mandela legacy against something which has its genesis in his administration? Well, I think that the the country has to
1: be, um, and that we all have to engage it for for a couple of really important reasons. Um, And some of them, again, I think that you referenced quite clearly in the previous discussion on the show. But the one is that what the arms deal shows us is it shows us a pattern of corruption that was around before democratic South Africa, but also patterns of corruption that very clearly have bled into more contemporary state culture. Absolutely, and, and that's defined, I think, in particular w- with regard to a couple of things. If you talk about the first administration, one of the things that the ANC showed itself uh, willing to do very early on was to accept money um, from dubious sources. And there's certainly the allegation that the ANC itself as a party, saw some benefit out of the corruption of the arms deal. And it's no doubt that that has continued uh, today. And I, I think that the other thing, which is of fundamental importance, is that we do, of course, spend a lot of time in South Africa talking about the role of Jacob Zuma in the arms deal. But really, questions of accountability are far broader than that. And they are about the role of large corporations Um, and those corporations who are very, very rarely held to account. What we have, I think, in South Africa is the opportunity to change that narrative. We have Thales, a French arms company, one of the few instances of of an arms company actually being prosecuted um, for allegations of corruption. And I think that there's enough evidence against other companies, the British company uh, BAE, for example. I think there's enough evidence for the MPA to be reopening uh, those investigations. And, and maybe finally, the last point I would just say on on that front, Songezo, uh, was that you know we, we speak about the erosion of our law enforcement and our, our prosecuting authority in the state capture years, but in so many ways, that process was first started, uh, you know, before Jacob Zuma was president, in the ANC's desire to neutralise the investigations into the arms deal, um, and it was a very real. Uh, on, the, on, I suppose, the, the country's institutional ability to deal with this type of corruption. Uh, and so for all of those reasons, it, it remains such a fundamentally important uh, issue to engage.
0: Mamvuyi in Parktown, one of our very loyal listeners, wishes to engage in this conversation. Mamvuyi, good evening. Thank you for calling.
2: Good evening, Funga. It's quite a right. How are you?
0: Well, Mama. Good I'm
2: calling. Mm. Mm. You know, this conversation needs uh, a long time, you know, maybe a full hours. Yeah, because uh, there's something that is missing here. Uh, The Westerners have got a a, a problem because they've mastered to be, you know, deceivers. It is the Western uh, powers that have got this system that when an African country becomes independent, they come in with all sorts of help, as uh, saviors, you know. And uh, 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 why is are corrupting people at this time? Because the change company, if you go deeper, you'll find that they are the ones who created the province of Guamanguruma for General Pocasso of Central Africa, for people like Kofor Bwani, and so many leaders in Africa, including the Because whenever the the country becomes independent, they come in as helpers as if they were not there. When Western powers were busy messing up in 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 the continent or in a country, and later until we go back to the Mandela administration, you know, because right now it's about nailing JZ, no, nailing Zuma, nailing Zuma. Yet Mandela was president. Zuluza Mbeki was a, a deputy president. John Modisio was the Minister of Defense. And we, some of us who grew up in Africa, have got the information about how things. We've seen so many leaders in Africa and countries going down in Latin America. You, you know, will become victims, willing victims, because people come in with their, this whole thing, they're, they're helping, you know, they're helping. I know the arms, the arms company that it has messed up the whole continent, and it has messed up so many leaders. But they still continue and no one actually stops this anarchy.
0: Thoughts on that, Michael? Really important point about the role of,
1: of both Western countries, but also their corporate interests, and how often the interests of Western states and their, and their, their corporations intersect and overlap. In the case of South Africa, it's quite an interesting case in terms of our transition to democracy, and that's because many of those countries were keen allies of the apartheid state. Many of them have, of course, pretended that they were not, um, but we know from the research that Open Secrets and others have done that countries like France and the United Kingdom uh, and others were really key uh, sources of support of it often they there finally through weapons, technology, and other things to the apartheid state, and so they were not arriving fresh in democratic South Africa, but rather they were, I think, in many cases continuing their behaviour. But maybe the really important point that's been made there is that drawing in new new elites essentially to what was often the same type of, of game um, to to bring this back. To The issue of the Suriki Commission and some of the, you know, really disturbing allegations and evidence is that although the the investigations by foreign states were often inadequate, there was uh, an investigation by the Serious Fraud Office in the United Kingdom, and we know from the record in the High Court that uh, the Serious Fraud Office actually offered the evidence to the Commission. and the commission inaccurately represented that in its findings. And so again, there was this, there was an opportunity to engage that legacy and do the kind of investigations that would uncover the conduct of those types of companies in foreign
0: countries. Let me ask and this question.
1: Answer, this opportunity.
0: Yes. S- sorry. Let me ask this question only because I'm seriously out of time here. What would, in the view of Open Secrets, be the best outcome of the application it has brought before the High Court? Your answer should contemplate my initial question before we took the ad break as to engaging what I believe to be the fundamental question in this inquiry that you have launched. Essentially, who guards the guards or who judges the judges and to what extent ought that to be taking place? And so the, the answer
1: to to, to this question, Songhezo, is, is quite simple. that the, What we really want the court to confirm in this regard is that the Judicial Conduct Committee within the Judicial Service Commission is the body that's responsible for holding judges to account if they are engaged in misconduct, and most importantly, that it can continue to do so even once a judge is retired. And there's never the possibility for a judge simply to retire and therefore avoid that, counts, that kind of accountability. You know, the, the constitutional framework is absolutely clear that the institution you know, that is responsible for preserving the integrity of the judiciary is the Judicial Service Commission, including the Judicial Conduct Committee. Um, and so that's why we've intervened in this matter. Of course, the judges actually brought the application to say that they are not
0: bound by the JCC because they are retired. And our
1: argument, to the court very much is that despite their retirement, they should still be held to account.
0: And, and what does accounting in this instance mean? What is the upshot of it all? Well, that would be for the determination of the Judicial Conduct Committee. So it would be for them to be
1: subjected to an investigation. uh, So the the requests to them are twofold. The one is for them to investigate and consider a finding uh, of gross misconduct um, in the sense that their conduct was incompatible with judicial office and was prejudicial to the independence of the judiciary. And we've also asked the JCC to do a second thing, which is to consider two very important parts where we think the commission and the justices may have misled the public and for the committee to consider whether that conduct should be referred to the National Prosecuting Authority in the case that they think there is a suspicion of criminal conduct.
0: Very well. Let's leave it there. Um, This is clearly a developing story and you know where to find us to breathe more and shed light on this matter. For now, I'm only going to say thank you very much and please do pass on my regards to your instructing attorney, Michael Power. Thanks, Rameza. Mr. Michael Marshant, Head of Investigations at Open Secrets. Well, this certainly should be interesting. Where to next for the judiciary as it continues to engage its own role players, judged by its own role players in the context of the rule of law and equality for all before it? 2139.